You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. Hello and welcome to the show. Stu Goldsmith here. This is the Comedian's Comedian podcast in which I talk to the great and good of the world of comedy and find out from my colleagues and fellow comedians, and in this case, specifically today, comedy magicians, exactly what makes them tick, how their creative processes flow most effectively and efficiently, and uh, of course the key question, whether or not they are satisfied with where they are. Today, we are talking to John van der Putt, a.k.a. Piff the Magic Dragon, who you will probably have seen. I think he's done enough of those GT shows. America's Got Talent, Britain's Got Talent, that kind of thing. Um, He has a phenomenal act. It is a genuinely laugh-out-loud funny act, and he's got a special on the way as well, which I was very lucky to see a preview copy of. And as you will hear in the early part of this show, I am a recent convert. Not to say... That I mean, Converse is putting it too strongly, but I really liked what he did um, when I saw it a little bit here and there. So I'm doing spots and stuff in Edinburgh. I wasn't aware of just how honed it is now, just how imaginative. And also he's managed to kind of uh, managed makes it sound uh, cynical. I don't mean that. Um, he has earned his place at the table with some of my comedy heroes, uh, including Penn and Teller. Uh, as he now works and lives in Vegas and uh, is absolutely banging out 400 shows a year and consulting to people like Penn and Teller and uh, and what have you. We are going to find out so much stuff. We're going to find out how he flicked the switch from sackable corporate table guy to the deadpan bulletproof performer that he is now. And we're going to find out why a fear of failure turns most magicians into, his words, hack copycats. Loads and loads to enjoy here. And if you go to the Insiders Club at comedianscomedian.com slash insiders, you will find another 30 or 35 minutes, I think, of extra stuff, uh, including Piff on the invention of his own tricks and how something new with a block of jelly has already cost him two and a half years and over $70,000. It's very different magic to comedy, but uh, we're going to get right under the skin of it now. And bless him, I think he got up at something like five in the morning in Vegas to record this. So uh, let's all pin back our dragon ears and enjoy this one. It's an absolute belter. This is Piff the Magic Dragon. Mate, I didn't realise I was as much of a fan of yours. I knew what I remembered of you from Edinburgh back in the day was... Things like the the appearing table, you know, the appearing yeah. table legs, and then naming the money. You know, your kind of your club set, right? right so right. whenever this was late late two thousand and eight nine, something like that, I guess. Yeah. And I remembered, okay, deadpan magician. I like that. I like that angle. I feel like I saw you out flying in the street. Oh yeah, that's all, like, all in I the did gear. in Edinburgh. Yeah, just uh, yeah, yeah. And I, but I kind of I was like, okay, this guy's doing like deadpan magic, sure. I've just been swimming around in all your clips and the special you sent me. And I'm your biggest fan. Ah, <laughs> like, thanks, you, Stuart. Like, I was excited to have you on because I remember you. You've obviously got an interesting story. The little bits I've seen here and there. I was like, oh, great. Yeah, this, this, of course, I'll yeah, bite your hand off. Having watched that special, it's just brilliant. It's laugh out loud funny. And I don't say that about any magician. Oh, me neither. Me neither, buddy. <laughs> God. So tell me... 
Look, there is so much to talk about. Tell me about the special and tell me the terms about which, like, have you released the special? Are no, you I going think we're just about to. I think we're just about to okay. release it. It's a, you know, it's a weird landscape for releasing specials, so it's taken a while. But I believe we're just, I, I don't know. I'm the last to know. But I believe we're about to release it. Yeah, I like it. I'm really proud of it. It took, a, it took about two years to make. And can we talk about it? Do we yeah. need to keep anything in it secret? No, we can talk like, about it, whatever you want to say. I think it's the funniest I've ever seen Penn, right? Oh, <laughs> like, well, I'm a I mean, huge Penn and Teller fan. Yeah. And I'm a big fan. I've seen a lot of their stuff. And I laughed and laughed and laughed at Penn in that, in the framing of him and the glee that he was having and how kind of off the hook he felt as your surprise guest slash log-lost father. I just can't believe that um, Penn is... Penn has his own dragon outfit because of me. <laughs> First of all, I can't believe I, I know Penn Jillette. That's that's one yes. thing. You know, I grew up watching Penn and Teller, and I did a show. My my basically my big break was doing uh, Penn and Teller Flawless, the original season in the UK, yeah. and I came on the show, and I, and 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 the you know the TV production company were were saying, oh, just do you know, just levitate your dog or something. And I was like, no, no, I have to make them think. I, the show is called Penn and Teller Flawless. I have to at least make them wonder how I did whatever I'm going to do. So yeah. um, I went on and I did, uh, you know, like you say, my club set. And then I ended with a magic trick that's like a difficult magic trick to do. And they really like that combination of like funny, you know, funny jokes and, and, and good magic. So they basically adopted me. And that was uh, 10 years ago. They, you know, that's incredible. Yeah. I didn't know about that. I knew that you'd done Fool Us. I did warm up for the pilot of Fool Us. I didn't do the. I didn't go on to do the series. Yeah. Um. I. I say that out loud now. Maybe they didn't like me, but I think they did. <laughs> I definitely like my my memory. My abiding memory of doing that was one guy, bless him, whose trick didn't work. He literally he'd forgotten to switch it on. But apart from that, my big memory of that was Teller saying something incredibly nice to me about my warm up. He kind of walked past to go for a wee in a, in a kind of recording break, and he just whispered something incredibly positive to me about the warm up job I was doing for them. And it was huge to me because I grew up with Penn and Teller, right. and I hadn't re- I didn't know. I knew that was your big break, but I didn't realize you were as like you're friends with them now and they've adopted you and everything. I'm not the kidding. Way- Penn's, Penn's my best friend out in Vegas. And I say that uh, bec- just, to, just to talk about how great those two are. I mean, he's literally like, you know, my biggest uh, kind of confident and supporter out here. So um, it's just, it's, it's just blows my mind. And Teller, the other day, uh, about a week ago, Teller and I were working on a magic trick for my show. So, I mean, Teller is a genius on a... Obviously, I'm not telling anyone anything they don't know here. But Teller is a genius on a different level of magic. He thinks about magical methods in a a very different way from anyone I've ever spoken to. And Penn has a way of uh, seeing magic that is... um, that, That really is a completely fresh angle on it, whatever he's looking at. So I can, like, take you know my ideas to both of them and and they just they have a way of making them a thousand times better than they ever would have been because it seems to me as a non-magical person as someone who like i but know you enough, did, I'm ma- the worst. i thought you did a bit of magic yeah like i could do i could do three i could do three sleight of hands than a pub i could do the yeah, tiniest right. bit of mentalism but like i'm the worst kind of magic fan like i know how a lot of it's done without having gone oh. through the practice and the craft do you know what I mean I'm yes the worst. i understand what you're saying you know you have a little bit of the secrets but you have none of the pain 
Yeah, hundred percent. Right. Yeah, and part and partly that's because of Penn and Teller, because of growing up with How to Play with Your Food. Yeah, that book they wrote where there was a tearaway page in the front that said everything in this in red ink fucks the trick up. Yeah. So tear away this page and then lend it to your friends and they won't be able to do this. stuff. And I was like, that mentality is a big deal to me. Like that's so, so fresh and so punk and so provocative. And I think it's, I think it's true to say that the magicians, certainly the magicians I know of as a, as a, as a 99.1% lay person are the people who have managed to do something different with it. If you think of, David Blaine, again, to me, David Blaine is the, oh, he wanders around next to motorways. He's like the sort of indie right. guy. And uh, Penn and Teller are the we give the trick away guys. And to me, again, uh, like Darren Brown is, he's the guy who's convinced you that it's not magic that he's doing. Right. Do you know what I mean? Right. So now you will have your own opinions on, on those, I'm sure. And I wouldn't ask Not that they're to... interesting. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, not that my opinions are that interesting. But yeah, no, I, I agree. Well, no, no, no. I, because I'm, I'm obviously I've got kid gloves on here because what I don't want to do is be like, so I know that mag- magic is a kind of... Piff the magic dragon I... destroys Penn and Teller. Live I guess it's worse park. than comedy in terms yeah. of how precious it is. Yeah. Is that is that a starting point? Is magic more precious than stand-up comedy in terms of how people deal with each other? It's painful because um, you know uh, comedy is 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 a, a very sensitive world because you know you're going up and you're sharing a part of your, your yourself really, and magic is divided into two camps. I would say the majority of magic is uh, hack, uh, copy, copycats, um, people who buy who are buying tricks and going on stage without any sort of ability, and um, and and just doing garbage. You know, that's like that is uh, objectively speaking most of magic and. As much as I would like to defend it, that's just the reality of it. And then there's a small portion of people who are really trying to, you know, do a good show and, and do a good thing. But magic is, I, I just think it's really, really, really difficult. And uh, I'm not, look, I mean, I'm no stand-up expert, but I have st- chunks of stand-up in my show. Every show I've you know, done for the last few years has at least five, five minutes of stand-up. It takes me about three months to write it. And, um, and then it goes in the show for about six months. And um, eventually it sort of like ages itself out, which is a weird thing with stand-up, where it sort of stops being as funny as it was six months ago, which I never really understand. But every night I say the same words and it gets the same response um within a within a within a realm and uh and it and it costs me zero dollars to make now magic um takes about two years to come up with one five minute bit uh, like a decent and and i would love to be uh the one saying well it's just because i'm so slow at making magic but no you talk to penn and teller and david copperfield everyone everyone says it's about two years for for a bit so it takes two years and tens of thousands of dollars. It's literally <laughs> like me saying, "Hey, you want to do you want to do stand up? Great! It's a thousand dollars every time you go on stage." And uh, yeah, you know, and, and and so so I I actually think the bar the bar to entry and the bar to success is is um is prohibitive in in good magic, and that's why you don't see that much of it. 
Yes. Okay. Okay. That's that. I hadn't even considered the cost. My take on it was always it takes so long. My my apprehension of it was that it seemed to take so long to learn the physical skill. Right. A lot of magicians do that when they're children instead of going outside and socialising right. and building charisma and personality. That's a problem and, too. There are many problems. Yeah. <laughs> so, so with that in mind, what I was going, well, the point I was building up to is that. I recognise that there are people who move it forward, who do something different, who position it differently. And those are the people, like, for me to have noticed a magician outside of the fringe circuit, they've got to be right up there so I can, right. you know, like, that, I, I know that my knowledge of magicians is, is not huge, is not broad. No, but your knowledge but, of magicians is not broad because there aren't many magicians out there doing something that's captivating and interesting with, with magic. I mean, that's the reality. So to me, the thing that you are doing differently... And I'm fascinated to know how much of a kind of um, uh, like a history there is within magic, how much of how much it's accepted that there is a thing of deadpan magic. Right. Because and or whether you'd even refer deadpan magic isn't sort of even really quite what I mean. But because of the suit lifting your or kind of allowing you to be grumpy and to eat food in the background and to be disinterested more than grumpy, disinterested. That completely changes the worst thing about bad magic, which is people wanting you to be impressed. The fact that you don't appear to give a shit whether or not we like it lifts it into like a top half a percent category. And I'm interested, are, are there other deadpan magicians? Do Have other people discovered that in the past? Are you part of a kind of a history of that? Or are you have you cracked it? Uh, I mean, look, we're all... Uh... We're all borrowing from the people who've come before us, for sure. But um, I think that there is something in magic where uh, it's something about pretending to have genuine magical powers that comes with a certain neediness, you know. (laughs) (laughs) For sure. And uh, I refuse. I just can't do it. I mean, look, I would love to be saying that all of this is a choice, and I want. I very cleverly sat down and uh, considered my options and decided that this was the way forward. But what actually happened was I was being fired every single place I was performing as a regular magician. When I was John, the uh, contemporary magician with the moody shots and the, the fancy um, you know, suit doing these private events and corporate dinners, uh, the reality was I just had a resting bitch face and everyone fired me because I was too grumpy to be at their wedding. You know, I mean, that's what I, this guy came up to me at a wedding. He said, what is your problem? You're like the Eeyore of magic. And then he and then he and then he was the groom. So he just fired me. That was it. Um, and then one day I went to a, uh, a, a party and it was my friend's party. It was a fancy dress party or a costume party. And I didn't have anything to wear. And I said to my sister, I need I need I need something to wear. She said, I got a dragon outfit under my bed. And I was like, done. <laughs> so. I go to this party. No one's in fancy dress. It's just me, and um, and one of my friends. You know, and then I was appropriately grumpy. And one of my friends said, "You should do this in your act. You could be Puffed Magic Dragon." I was like, "Wait, I could be Piffed Magic Dragon." You might have heard of my older brother, Steve, and I thought that's a funny idea. And I tried it, and suddenly it made everything about me socially acceptable, and. So I didn't have to pretend anymore with the magic. I just could just like be me and um, say what was ever in my head. And it turns out that that was, yeah, I'm going to do this stuff. And if you don't understand it, that's on you. 
So the, I'm. Uh, thank you for the the condensed kind of like the the origin story. The which I'm, I'm sort of. I was at the cliff notes. I was aware of that, but I did when I first read that as like the origin of the suit and all the rest of it. Part of me thought, well, I know enough about magic to know that one of the skills is you create an origin story right. and you stick to it like to the you death. Bob Dylan it. I, but unfortunately, yeah. yeah, right. But I, I unfortunately, so, I have it's the, so neat, right. I, even when it was happening to me, even when I was like in 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 that party, I was like, "This is a good origin story." Uh, so, but again, it's, again, it comes back to I've been I, look. I'm a hard worker. That's the one thing I'll say about myself. I'm like a dog with a bone, and uh, I know that when I'm given an opportunity, then um, then uh, there there are few enough of them that I've got to make the most of every one of them. So. That's the only thing I say. Everything else is literally just like uh, just good fortune that I've that something's come across my my plate and I've uh, like a bear with a salmon just like grabbed it and then ah! <laughs> that's um and, and that's what happened at that at that at that party. I was like, that is a really good idea, and I'm just going to do this now because I was literally being fired everywhere that I that I was. Um, was performing and that was my only job that's really the only skill set i have is is doing is doing magic for people who may or may not want to see it and most of them didn't so in terms of the tone that you have because like one of the things like obviously phenomenally skilled you know you've done low you've you've put in your thousand hours yeah i've practiced you've practiced yeah but the tone that you have is more important, I think, to me and maybe to a lot of people. There's a lot of yeah. people have practiced. Not everyone has got the tone. And presumably once you arrive at that, like if pre-PIF, presumably when you were writing material, because you didn't have an angle, you didn't have much of a starting point for material. Whereas once you're A, Ugh. a dragon, and B, happily right. disinterested, those are they're both incredible jumping off platforms to, to write anything. I think one of the things that happened that that happened to me was, you know, it takes 10 years to get good at this stuff, right? But I'd spent, by the time I started doing, um, you know, wearing a onesie, uh, I'd spent like 10 years doing magic and being, and, and I'd sort of found a voice in that, but it was just not a voice that anyone wanted. So, uh, you know, I was doing close-up magic in a restaurant in Croydon, and I walked up to this table and said, hello, do you want to see some, uh, you know, do you want to see some magic tricks? And the guy slid his table, slid his chair back across the floor and he stood up and he said, my wife has just asked me for a divorce. Do you really think I want to see some fucking magic? And I said, no, because she's made half your house disappear. And <laughs> I got fired immediately. And I was just like, oh, God, I just can't do this. So I had like... You know, I had, so you had the act and you had the tone. I had the act, and I had the angle, work. and I had the tone. It's just I didn't, I didn't have that. Um, uh, I didn't have that way to make it to make it play. And it was just so crazy that I, like I say, I, you know, I stumbled across this idea at a party. It took me six months to get the courage to do it. I did it once, and I was like, "This is." The, as soon as I walked on stage, it was uh, it was like July fifth in two thousand and eight in the American way because that's the only way i can do dates now <laughs> i have to do them backwards um but i walked on stage and i and i did it and i really was like oh my god this is what i do now and so i just dropped everything else and um i i, pers I pursued it 
And it was amazing how quickly it just connected. And like you say, like the right, you know, like suddenly I, I knew how to write the material and everything, everything just started working from then. And where was that? Where was that very first gig? That was, was that in the UK. In a pub. I used to put on these, um, these sort of like comedy nights and it was a, in a pub called the Honor Oak in um, Honor Oak where I grew oh, up. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I grew up in southeast London, so it was just down the road. So this is Piff and slash John. It's Piff and John. We're talking to John, but John is Piff. I probably should have made it clear at the beginning that he's not in character, uh, as you can hear. Well, I mean, is he not? It's it's not a character so much as him looking grumpy in a costume. So let's not delve too deeply into that. But I think it remains the case that only uh, Randy the puppet is the only person who has been themselves on the show. Do you remember the Randy the puppet episode? Been themselves. I mean, been been their character. Um, where we got to speak to Heath McIver, the uh, owner, creator and operator of Randy. We're not in that kind of territory. This is Piff and John through and through. Reminder to go to comedianscomedian.com slash insiders for some more information, half an hour's more stuff uh, from Piff on his own bad magic and his own guilty shortcuts, as well as his evangelist upbringing and uh, what comics can learn from magicians. And on top of that, you also get not only the recent insider-only Q&As, you get, if you're in the Insiders Club, when they crop up, you get to be in those Q&A sessions and ask questions yourself. And if you join it at any point, you can hear the the audio from specials with Nish Kumar, James Acaster, Fern Brady, Alfie Brown, and the very recent and absolutely incredible Self-Help for Comedians special with the brilliant Amanda Donnett, holder of three degrees, very intelligent lady and brilliant, brilliant uh, psychologist and uh, that that is I mean you remember if you're a lifer if you're a long-term fan you'll remember uh, break glass in case of emergency which I think was a sort of the best of the most uplifting bits of the first hundred episodes of this show and um, that's available on Bandcamp if you care to track it down um, but this is a similar if not very much better and more effective I imagine it's a real shot in the arm it's like a condensed version of how to make yourself happy in the face of things like performance anxiety, writer's block, worrying about how much self-disclosure on stage is too much. And even if you're not a comic, you can really get some incredibly useful, juicy and and immediately usable concepts uh, from that episode. So um, that's all I'll say about that for now. You can find that and all the extra stuff at comedianscomedian.com slash insiders. Email me at info at comedianscomedian.com or get in touch with me on various socials at ComComPod. Thank you for all the correspondence. I know how much you love the one with Rosie Jones. I know how much you love the Greg Jenner one. This is an absolute banger. Also in the can, we have Josh Johnson. Fabulous, uh, very exciting, very, very funny uh, comic in the States who has a new mixtape concept special coming out soon, uh, as well as a show on Comedy Central, which I don't think you can get in the UK, but you'll be able to find it. Just get Googling Josh Johnson. He's amazing. And that one's a belter. Paul Zerdin is another. We've got Piff and Paul Zerdin in the same month. Um, Brilliant, brilliant uh, ventriloquist and certainly worth looking at his incredible stuff online. Um, And two or three more very exciting people coming up who I won't mention until they are safely in the can. That's everything. Let's get back to Piff. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. 
Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. As a magician, is it important to you to be inventing new tricks? Or is it... Like, which is the most important thing to you to kind of leave behind a legacy of like that's a oh god first of all that's a piff trick first of all there's no legacy listen we're all dust (laughs) we're all we're all dust in a few years and I agree with you and I'm and I'm and I'm all for it by the way the the idea that the pressure of trying to leave a legacy you know I had a friend of mine uh, and they're an actor and they said oh yeah we stopped doing I stopped doing theatre acting. And, and I only want to do film because I want to leave a legacy. And I'm like, oh, my God, that is a lot of pressure. No, um, <laughs> no, uh, a forgotten footnote is what I'm going for. And but like there are but someone like Copperfield, you would think he wants to leave a legacy, right? Do, do you think? Yeah, but that's right. But hang on. But that's David Copperfield. You know, like that's a, <laughs> you know I, don't, I don't even know. Who's the comedy equivalent of David Copperfield? Carlin? I don't know. Pryor? Pryor. Maybe Pryor. I, d- I don't know. He sold more tickets than Michael Jackson. Did he really? Holy shit. Yeah. Okay. I mean, it's like there are these mad statistics about David Copperfield that will just blow your mind. And um, he still performs 15 shows a week, uh, whatever it is. I can't remember. 42 weeks a year or something. So he does, he does 700 shows a year. It's madness. So do you feel like do you feel like you fit in the room when you're in the room with Penn and Teller and David Copperfield? No. Hang, hanging out in a magic bar. Do you because like you you have you have been phenomenally successful right, right now and I know a lot right. of that is you've got great marketing, you've got a great angle, all of your copy is brilliant because a lot of it arises. I remember the first time in Edinburgh seeing that billboard that said loser of Americans got talent. Right. Like you know how to sell yourself, you know? Right. So I I imagine there is somewhere on the spectrum of Oh, you absolutely have a place at the table because those guys all respect what you're doing because what you you are one of the tiny percentage of people who are doing something different. You have made it from you know from a an, an outsider origin to having you know residency at Vegas or the rest of it. And somewhere on the other end of the scale, and these things may be true simultaneously, is your sort of kind of a grifter, right? Like you had a hustle. Right. You're in. You're you're you are trapped eternally inside a floppy green cage of your own oh, making God. like yes. part of the joke is this is pathetic which yes. is really hard to pull off and you often see if you think of um people who made a transition from being like a sweaty fringe act that was all about madcap chaos you put it on tv and it doesn't work it doesn't look right and all right. the magic dies you found a way to keep you found a way to kind of take i'm gonna turn being pathetic like not being, not acting pathetic, but the tone of like, this is a bit crap, which is so British and make it fucking smash in Vegas. So to yeah. what extent do you feel like you've you've earned your place? And to what extent do you feel like you're a hustler and you could get found out any day? That's I mean, that's yeah. It's, and, it, and, and the truth is somewhere in the middle of that, because um, because the act doesn't work um, if it's not good. Cool. You know, I like like most things, but this really like and I've done those shows over and over again. I've done I've like I've gone out with like the material that's not ready. I've gone out with the tricks that aren't good enough or the jokes that aren't good enough. And I, so I've proved over and over that um, that this doesn't work unless it's like killer. And also it's like there's also something 
like when I do, did stuff like Penn and Teller Fallers or America's Got Talent, there's something really funny about going into somewhere that has a hundred million dollars of production behind it and uh, performing in a, in a, in a, in a stupid dragon outfit that really is, is actually probably a crocodile that, uh, <laughs> you know, I'm like, <laughs> so, so I, I, I feel like um, I've put in the hours in terms of uh, getting on stage and, and, and working, working, working at things. But I also feel like um, uh, people like Penn and Teller and David Copperfield, they have, they have genius. They have, they have, there is an element that they just think in a different way than I do. And I'm happy to be the light comic relief. I'm happy to be the, uh, you know, the sassy sidekick at those, uh, those brunches, uh, always coming up with the hilarious quip. You know, <laughs> I'm like the uh, Melissa McCarthy in, in Bridesmaids of that group. You know, okay. so uh, and that's my place, and I and I'm very glad to be there. But <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's the crazy thing about I I, I t- I'll tell you a story. I mean, it's like I was dating this girl in the UK, and her parents hated me. They just hated me, and you know, it was it got serious, and we were like together for a long time. And I and I, in the end, I took out her mum for lunch, and I said to her mum, "Listen, like we're going to be together, so." The more you, you and I can get on and we can figure out how to make this like, relationship cordial, the better for everyone. And she said, well, it's nothing personal, but we just feel like you're going to become more and more successful as a magician. You're going to get your own show in Las Vegas and you're going to leave our daughter. And I was like, if there's one thing I can promise you right now, <laughs> it's that I will never have a show in Las Vegas. <laughs> because there I was, as like this like, you know, like I've been doing magic for 10 years and I was fired everywhere. I just started out on the comedy circuit. I was finding my way. And the idea that I would like become a like Las Vegas headline, it was so, I mean, it was beyond ludicrous. And then now like we've literally just changed rooms in the, in the Flamingo um, hotel and casino. And we're in the main showroom there. It's like an 800 seat venue and it's and it's bananas it's bananas and i'm just i just cannot believe that this happened and talk to me then about the mechanics of of vegas for you yeah so you like what was the little room that you were in that was your was that your first residency in vegas yeah that was um that was the Piftomatic dragon theater it was like a 200 seat uh venue and everyone was crammed in like a, and it was definitely a violation of 19 fire codes which is the best <laughs> room for comedy you yeah, know, of course. The closer you and are that, to death, the more. And that's sorry, sorry to interrupt. The uh, yeah, I totally agree with you. Calling it the Piff the Magic Dragon Room or the Piff the Magic Dragon mm. Theater is that I sort of feel like is that a bit of Vegas kind of flim flam where it makes it sound like you have your own theater, but really it's a studio. Do you know what I mean? So um, it's kind of yeah, right. It's a venue. It's it's like a two hundred seat like uh, room where people go to watch shows, and uh, and I don't know. Yeah, they named. That so, but but the nature of a residency is they call the venue after you while you're there. Oh, yeah. But it yeah. sounds to the casual listener like they've built him his own venue. Exactly. But it is, right, that is the weird thing about Vegas is that um, the theatres are not like, the acts don't pass through the theatres, most of them. You know, there are a few like that, but most of them are like, they house like specific shows. So like the Penn and Teller Theatre is like, the only show there is the Penn and Teller show. Okay. Um, so yeah, it's like it's all uh, it's all um, 
uh, marketing and all that stuff. But yeah, I was in this tiny room for, for five years and, um, it, we really like built it up and built it up over the, over the five years. And, and then when the lockdown happened, when, when everything shut down and, uh, everything, it, it was pretty clear that we weren't going to go back to doing shows shoulder to, with the audience shoulder, shoulder to shoulder. So, yeah. and we'd actually been busting at the seams in the, in that room. So I was like, well, it may be that we get a chance to sort of move up to a bigger room and, um, you know, we have the, we have the ticket sales now to, to justify it. So I started working on a much bigger show and, and last October I was the first headliner back on the Las Vegas trip. Come on. <laughs> Performing in the pandemic. It was bananas. <laughs> Talk to me about the, the schedule. You work, how many shows a week do you do? Uh, right now I only do six. So that's, um, that's kind of a part. I do like Thursday through Monday and we do two on Saturday. But um, when we first came back, when we first came back to do shows, we could have 250 people in, in the theater, uh, which, is, which is not too bad. And then, um, and then there was, you know, the numbers went up. So they reduced it to 50 people in a in a 800 seat theater which is six percent oh my god oh my god and i you must it, you must be the only act who can cope with that oh i love it there was a club <laughs> did you ever did you ever do the playboy club in london i don't think so no that was it was I more like remember. cabaret acts but okay. um no one would play it because it was a nightmare and so i would just be able to play it every single week and I would always be like, yeah, any gig, just send me any gig. I'm happily, I, I'll happily bum anywhere, but I want to try and get good at the, at the, ter- at the, at the tough gigs. So, yeah, um, a show for 50 people in an 800-seat room, I'm, I'm all in. And, um, and they're all masked and, di- you know, 25 feet from the stage. So at that point, we were doing 10 shows a week. But, um, and before, 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 the, before the whole shutdown thing, we were doing about 400 shows a year. And with, okay. with a mixture of like but almost 300 in Vegas and uh, uh, just over 100 on the road. Okay. So and I is like that, doing can shows. You, like, the thing about Vegas that I only really have a sort of vague understanding of is it's, it's the place where you do shows all the time. It's yes. Edinburgh every day of the year, say. Is there probably that's, the nearest that's thing the best I can ex- kind of that's, that's the best analogy. It is Edinburgh every day of the year. And I think I want that. Right. Did you think you wanted that? And how I know, that? I, I, I know, I wanted up? it. I know, I wanted it. So, and ha- how is and it, I love it when you're? It's like a day job. It does it feel like a day job? Does it solidify into a? This is how my day works. I'm just gigging every single night for right. my entire life. Well, there are two things. First of all, magic is not like comedy. Um, not like it's not like. Um, uh, it's not like sort of like. Jerry Seinfeld stand-up. You know, when Jerry Seinfeld's doing stand-up, then uh, he's, he's, he's written the jokes. Uh-huh. You know, he's, he's, he's honing it and then he's, and then he's reciting it. Magic, you've basically got a loose cannon on stage with you multiple times throughout the show who at any moment could ruin your life. At any moment. <laughs> the volunteer, so, this is. Yeah, the volunteer, yeah. yeah. So the dog, I was talking about that, that dog, no. <laughs> um, the volunteer. So it's like a golf swing. It's like every night you're trying to hit that perfect golf swing 
and every night you do it to a lesser or greater degree and then you've got to like connect the shots because that's like the different tricks so the idea of doing a perfect show is um is never going to happen it's that you're never going to do it and there's a part of my brain that's always engaged um that's always in the moment with magic and again like i say i have about five minutes to stand up in the night and that is where my mind wanders because i'm saying the same thing uh, uh each night and that's the moment when i really have to like stay present as opposed to the moment when i've got some you know uh some person from the audience who could who could just send the whole thing tumbling down that's fascinating so that's why i love doing it every night in the special, when I saw the bit, there's like a chunk in the special at a yeah. similar rhythmical place, I imagine. Yeah. When you do some stand-up, it was like, oh, just stand-up stuff. And I wondered whether, like, does the impetus to do that come from you wanting to prove to yourself that you can still do the stand-up? Or is it, or that you're still connected to that world? Or that you're capable of it? Or is it that it's it's cheaper in the budget of creating yeah, the show? Right. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like, where does that come from? I, lo- I, lo- I love stand-up. I've always loved it. I love being able to do it. I never felt I would be able to do it. And so whenever, you know, whenever I go out and perform stand-up, I'm like, oh, my God. Like, this is, this is great that I, can, um, that I can do what my heroes have, uh, have done. But um, at the end of the day, people want to see tricks. So I only get a small window to do it. And... Um, and uh, you know, it's a magic and comedy show. Sometimes it's just magic, and therefore, sometimes it's just comedy. But most of the time, I try and get that hybrid, which is a difficult, difficult hybrid to get. But um, I mean, I, I, I'm actually uh, working on just putting together a stand-up hour, which I think would be hilarious. Just, re- just putting out an, uh, uh, like a, maybe an EP or something as um, you know, just 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 audio stand-up. So. Uh, but, but just I, audio, just audio. Yeah, just stand-up. audio. I think it'd so. Be... No suit, no nothing. No dragon, or still the no. Concept I'll, of the I'll dragon. perform it in the dragon, but okay. I'll release it as audio only. Um, <laughs> I love the idea. I love it. And there's a lovely bit in the special as well when you're doing magic for the visually impaired lady. Oh yeah, and just kind of bullying her. <laughs> yeah, so great. I love yeah. the idea of all audio magic. That's glorious. But that's you, the so thing you... about the, when I did that thing for yeah, I did magic for for a. I mean, she was essentially blind. She could see like I think it was like six inch, six inches yeah. in front of her eye or something. And that's the crazy thing is like you can't write that. And and um, we were able to capture that on the special. So and do you when you're helping other people with their tricks? What do you think are the like? What do you think is your skill set in the room? What do you think when people go? Ah, do you know who we need? John or, or yeah, right. Piff. You know, we'll. Uh, We'll we'll get him in because he'll be able to bring the what 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 flavor is it that you bring? Um, like if I was if I was to say oh I've I've got to work on some one liners, you might think I've got to you know if I've got to sort of get, I need help. Let's get Gary Delaney in. Yeah. Let's get Gary Delaney. Yeah. Let's get Adam Bloom. You know. Yeah. So what thing is it you think people come to you for? Um, I don't know. I I used to do a lot of magic consulting, and uh, the one thing I hate about magic is the method. Because it's the it's the barrier between me and getting on stage, and um, to get a really great method is is very very painful and is solitary. You can't. I, the other reason I love stand up is because you can work it out in front of an audience. You know, you can get up there. I did. Well, I did in Edinburgh one year, and I just and I did a a show called 
oh, I can't even remember what it was called actually. Um, but it was just about, it was an hour. I didn't wear the dragon outfit. I just went on stage and talked for an hour. And it was a little bit like origin story with a little bit of um, uh, sort of anecdotes thrown in. And I loved it. I turned up. At, I think the show was like 4 p.m. I turned up at 3.59 p.m. And I was on time. And then I finished. <laughs> I did uh, 55 minutes. And uh, I said, thank you, good night. And I walked off stage and out of the room. And I was done. And I couldn't believe it. I was like, oh, my God, this is amazing. And I was doing the work in front of the audience. So, yeah. you know, by the end of the week, the show was, uh, you know, the show was pretty funny, actually. Magic is not like that. It's like you turn up hours in advance and uh, there are no answers on stage. If you don't have the trick going on stage, you're not going to find it out there. So you have to work on that on your own, usually. Um, and sometimes you can persuade another somebody else. But that, that other person ends up being a hostage. You know, you're both hostages to to trying to make trying to uh, persuade magic to let you out of the room. And I I worked with Penn and Teller for a year, and I I I saw pretty early on that my my, my job was to say the stupidest idea uh, of the day, so that no so that everyone else was free just to come up just to say any idea because nothing could be dumber than what Piff the Magic Dragon just came up with. Brilliant. Brilliant. That and that's so. I mean, I'm so happy to hear that. That's completely kind of in keeping with, I don't know what I what I hoped or what I. Now, one of the things that, that I'm very passionate about in magic is that it's okay to fail, because magic is not. Again, it's not like comedy. If the magic trick doesn't work, you fail. The audience will turn against you, and there you are not good. You know, in comedy, if one of your jokes bombs, then that's like maybe like. Um, you know, you can recover from that pretty, pretty easily. It, it, and, and you don't have that in magic. And as a result, there's a culture amongst magicians that failure is bad. And, and we know that there's a culture in stand-up that failure is not bad. Failure is like part of the journey. So um, I, I, I like, I, I'm kind of passionate about the fact that magicians should fail a lot more. And um, and it's that Beckett thing of like fail better, so um, yes. And and I so they're scared. Do you do you think magicians are particularly scared of yes failure then because it because it just seems to connote disaster. They're scared of it, and they also stigmatize it. So if you fail, then people are like ah, you're rubbish. And I've had that over and over again when I was coming up. Then uh, magician, you know, there were plenty of magicians who who and still are. Uh, who will be like, oh yeah, that that's that's dreadful, and um, and they're right because they saw me, you know, do, like bomb somewhere or they saw a trick not working. Again, with magic, it either works or it doesn't. It's binary. It's not like comedy where it's um, where it, there comedy can definitely be not funny, but it can also be uh, a bit funny, quite funny, really funny, hilarious. Oh my god, that that's killer. Uh, magic is either on or off. So. Um, you know, I've done plenty of gigs where where the audience saw how the trick worked, and therefore there's no magic. Yeah, that's the thing stops existing, doesn't it? Yeah, and <laughs> and and people only ever see you know they often only ever see one or two or three shows of yours. So there are plenty of people out there going, "I saw Piff the Magic Dragon, and he was dreadful. How is how is he in Vegas now? What what has he done?" Do you think do you think there is a link between your um your stand up roots obviously and your 
your acceptance of failure being a part of the process and the fact that when you fail as Piff, because you haven't promised, right. like you, you, like your emotional engagement is different because you're eating a banana at the time. Do you know what I mean? Right. Like you're, you, you do not appear so invested. You are personally invested, but you haven't gone all in on the personality of promising them this is going to be great. So you've given yourself effectively a permanent escape route to an extent. Obviously, right. if you need it to work, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. But you don't have the sort of the additional kind of body horror of going, it doesn't work. And therefore, I feel like a failure. Yeah, I can, I can get away with it. Um which was very useful when I was starting. But, um, yeah, I'm not, I'm not, um, you know, it's like Tommy Cooper is, uh, occasionally the trick would work and that would be the surprise. Whereas imagine that, imagine if you were saying that about David Copperfield, you know, I mean, (laughs) once in a while he does vanish the Statue of Liberty and it's great when it happens, (laughs) but you know, you don't go expecting it. So, but do you th- do you think that's true then? That yeah. you're that you. It's easier for you to risk failure than a lot of magicians. hundred because of your tone. A hundred percent. And 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 that was a decision I took early on. Was that I could be like a, a quote unquote joke magic act, but then I think the whole thing co- sort of collapses in on itself. And if there's anything I've learned about Jello, that is a bad bad. <laughs> <laughs> How do you mean? You mean if the because you're funny, if you the danger is you let the skills to. St- you let the skills slip and you are less kind of pioneering, less innovative. And then you simply become, he's a funny guy. Yeah. People expect the magic to be bad. You know, I walk out in, in a kid's party magician suit, you know, uh, I, I, and, and, and by the way, I thought when I was at that party years ago and said, you know, I could be puffed a magic dragon. I thought that would be a funny five minute bit. And my only dream at that time was to be in shows like the clique or the soiree and do a five minute bit. And the only thing that I, you know, the only thing that stopped me from doing that is I just kept having ideas and I kept thinking, wouldn't it be funny if, and, and that's kind of continued. I never, I, I didn't even think I'd be able to get to an hour long show and I've done, you know, a bunch of them now. So, um, but one of the, one of the decisions early on was, uh, this would be much funnier if the magic suddenly crushed and everyone was like, wait a second, how the hell did you do that? Yeah, right. Yeah. And you, in terms of how you build out the world of Piff, that's something I was really impressed with in the special because not only have you got, you've got Mr. Piffles, yes. the, the Chihuahua. The OG. Who, He's still the same one. I was, I didn't want to ask. ask. There were a lot of listener questions about that. <laughs> There's a lot of people saying, surely it can't be the same yeah, dog. It's amazing. Other people saying, the dog routinely died during the show and was buried. And you know, I mean, there's an end of a show they saw where the dog had supposedly died. Oh, yeah. I used but, to kill um, the dog every night. And I used to, when I did that, <laughs> when I did that in America, I, I had a montage video um, of like these like glamour shots of piffles set to the wind beneath my wings, you know, the song from Beaches. And, you know, I, I, so I would kill the dog. What would happen is I would get an audience member to, um, to uh, shoot the dog out of a cannon and the dog would die and I'd frame the audience member for murder in order to hit yeah. on um, their, their, their girlfriend or wife or whatever. And um, wh- which actually I don't, I've kind of like really pulled away from, uh, from, from that whole side of like, magic. is like there's such an element of magic where it's like a... Um, What's that thing that people use? Pickup artists. 
You remember that? Yeah. And they used to yeah. they used to use magic as a pickup technique. And so when I started, like there was, I was like, you know, oh, I'm going to do some ironic uh, pickup magic, and, yeah. uh, and and definitely in the last sort of I don't know five years, I've just gone, nah, nah, that's not interesting. Let's not do that anymore. Because you know the idea totally. of like magicians hitting on, you know, even like funny magicians hitting on audience members is like done to death. But yeah. at the time, that's big. Uh, yeah, go on. Sorry. No, at the time, that's how I would do. It. I would like frame. I would I would murder the dog in order to uh, frame this this guy in order to hit on this girl who would then reject me, leaving me with the ashes of my dead dog. And I would there's a there's a there's a famous trick in magic called the salt pour, where you take a small handful of salt. And um, yep. you, you, you pour it out onto this stage and it c- continues pouring for like three minutes. So I would do that with the ashes of the dog. And then out of the ashes, <laughs> I would then uh, sweep them all together and produce piffles in a sort of like okay. in an angelic angel uh, costume. But yeah, I would Beautiful. kill my dog on stage every night. When it comes to th- those kind of issues, like the pickup artist thing and the fact that like because magic does it does it can seem sleazy. It is. I mean? it it is the, it's like not magicians don't have a great right. reputation no, as human beings because they've earned it. Yeah, you know, and that's why they've. Uh, it doesn't come from nothing. It's like, hey, what what are you guys going to do? You're going to saw a woman in half? What kind of what kind of dick move is that? You pricks! And by the way, when I say you guys, that's already a big problem. You know. Yeah. Uh, so, I in my in my mid twenties. I actually had a theater company called Stand Not Amazed, which was like a magic-based contemporary theater. Uh, and, oh, my God. I mean, talking about pretentious, it was so far up its own ass. But one of the things that was interesting was being able to, like, take magic illusions and uh, spin them on their head and, and be like, why, you know, why, why are we even doing this in the first place? Yeah. Okay. So I quite enjoyed there's a that big, part There's a big debate about a year ago, I noticed, amongst, uh, on, on Street Performer Facebook. Uh, whereby people were talking about the the gag where you kiss the female volunteer on the cheek, which I used to do. I did it on right. Chi- yeah, right. right. I did it on just, to, just to explain for the listener what yeah. what that what that gag is. They then you motion on your own cheek. This is like this is this must date back five thousand years. This right. gag, you know, right. you you point your you motion to your chin, and the female volunteer kisses you, and at the last minute you turn your head and kiss her on the lips. Right. For me, growing up as a street performer, oh, a hoot, outrageous. Oh, it's 2021. That's right. not cool. Right, right. And it and and it is not cool now. And it was never cool then. And I used to do it every night. And um, and I was performing in a in a comedy club in LA. And the owner was like, "Oh, I I don't want you to do that." And I was like, "Whoa, why are you being so sensitive?" Um, you know. And I did it on America's Got Talent. And it was like one of the things that people like always remember. And uh, and and being able to have some distance from it, I just go, nope, nope. Mm-hmm. Why would you do that to somebody? You know, why would you put an audience member who has volunteered their their um, their vulnerability? Why would you ever put them in that position? But uh, I mean, it's just ignorance and stupidity, really, and and taking the easy route out. And 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 um, and. Now, that's one example of that. And then the other example is like, oh, I'm just going to do a card trick that uh, that I bought from the Internet because uh, it gets a great reaction. You know, that's a sort of like uh, less um, charged version of it. But it's all like the, the, the same problem. 
when you I was talking earlier on about building out the the world of Piff. So you have Jade the, in the special. You have Jade the showgirl, and I can't remember the guy's name. Francis, like the kind of Francis, the Francis yeah. of course. Apologies to Francis, um, as well as Mr. Piffles. And then this is the cave I live in, and those kind right. of things. It reminded me of a conversation I had years ago with Louisa Omilan, who was smashing Edinburgh doing yeah. what would Beyonce do. And I remember saying, you know, you you could. I was suggesting that she could look to what Beyonce does as things that could be fun elements for her to play with to either, you know, either one end as merch or at the other end as like ideas for material for shows. Like if she's Louisa Romuland, she should probably have a fragrance. Do you know what I mean? Like building right. out the the world in that way. And I really enjoyed those elements of, of the special and of your work where you're like, what would, you know, every so often you hear them talk about, you hear Steve Coogan saying, what would Alan be up to now? Right. Do you know what I mean? And kind of, like trying to work on those bases. I don't know. I don't know if that's really a question, but just talk a little bit about the world building of, of Piff. I just think, um, you know, there's something maniacal about magicians where they just, they just suddenly decide to build empires out of nothing. <laughs> well, they, where, I, I totally agree with you. I've got a theory as to where that comes from. What's your theory? Uh, that, they're all, that we're all mad, that we're all... Um, that we're all just completely, that we're just uh, uh, ego, egomaniac, narcissist, uh, uh, psychopaths, really. But, um, you know, Dolly, Dolly Parton has Dollywood. And I just, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, one of the early things that I thought of, it would be hilarious to have Piffland. And uh, so I, I have those tendencies. I, I definitely also have a gap between me and those tendencies, which other other magicians may not have, I believe. Um, <laughs> but I still have the tendencies and therefore guilty as charged. But um, yeah, I just, I just think it's, I just think the idea that you're going to walk out on stage and say, hey, everyone, I have magic powers is so ridiculous that um, I was like, I need a way to frame this in order that the audience, that I can like, uh, you know, sleep at night. And for me, that was a, a, a lucky idea. You know, I'm going to be Piff the Magic Dragon. Yeah, I'm a dragon who does magic. What's the problem? And so once I started with that concept, then there was sort of no end to the madness. Then it really was like, oh, yeah, well, obviously I'm a dragon. So I need a I need a princess. I need a knight. I need a squire. I need, you know, oh, I need a castle. I need a cave. And, uh, you, you know, I've got I've got to sleep on treasure. And so all of this stuff, it's like it's they're funny things to have. And then they're funny things to sort of play against as well. Yeah. Do you just as a thought experiment, if you. I don't know. We would need to we need to contrive some situation in which you could never be Piff again. What would your feelings be about building something else from scratch? Like you know, you see a puppeteer who gets massive success right. with one particular thing, and then they maybe get a bit bored of it and go, "Oh, now it's me and this guy." And the audience goes, "Huh?" Like is is that the thing we fell in love with? Yeah. Like, what do you feel about that? Um, I don't know because I don't feel. Look, I mean, there are some things that I've been a part of that are unequivocally genius. You know, it's definitely genius to, um, to, uh, to, to get a, get a magic performing chihuahua and, uh, you know, like uh, win the hearts of America that way. Unfortunately, 
I didn't plan any of it. I just stumbled across it and, uh, and made the most of it. And so I feel like, I feel like I will never, you know, I could never like create that from a blank page. So I just, and, and also some of the best ideas are things that other people have suggested to me. And I go, God, that is a genius idea. Um, yeah. I, my work is like massively collaborative. You know, I have a whole team of people that I work with. The best ideas come from the group. And um, if anything, uh, if I have a skill, it's being able to pick and choose from other people's genius. So uh, I, I, I do question whether I would be able to come up with something, you know, from a blank page. But equally, I, al- I also have learned to trust the process rather than, you know, the blank page. Because at the beginning... I just look at it and go, oh, well, this is garbage. We just, we just did a show um, last year called Torn On Of Laughs, which, which we, had to, I, we had to make. Uh, and I always talk in the, in, the, in, the, in the plural. Is that what we is? Uh, the, like the first person. You mean like the royal we? The royal we, yeah. Because, I don't know what it's called. Yeah, whatever that royal we is, is because it is. It's like, it's me. It's, uh, you know, Alex Jarrett, right? Yeah. Yeah. So Alex and I have been fr- like great friends for uh i don't know nine ten years and so okay um know, yeah, alex is a massive collaborate part of my collaborative process okay um so him and i we did all these like videos for this tournament of laughs thing together and every week we'd have to start with a completely blank page and within a week come up with this uh this madness and we did like movie, you know, fake movie trailers. And uh, I did a stunt where I set myself on fire and turned into a chicken. Um, you know, and it's like, and I look back and I go, and that was with Stuart McLeod, who is a genius. He's another, you know, from Barry and Stuart. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I knew the name. Yeah. I yeah. Knew and, 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 and um, so I've learned now to just to trust the process, not have a panic attack in the middle of it, which is what I enjoy doing. Um, you know, at least three a day, a good three, a good three panic attacks a day will get me through, will get me through. But, um, I've learned just to really trust it now and accept that, uh, eventually the, this will, this will get good. I think part of that response kind of is, is really important that sometimes the genius is in recognizing that collaboration provides the genius. And like you said, making the choices, making the decisions between, yes, I'll do that. Piff will do that. Piff won't do that. And I think also it's like there are there are people who are genius. There are, oh my god! I just saw James Acaster's new special. Mm-hmm. I mean, the man is like, I don't even understand how he's coming up with that material and how he. I mean, like those three specials he did back to back. I just don't even understand how you film that, you know, without a teleprompter that you're just reading from very carefully. <laughs> it's like. Uh, so there are, you know, I see, I see um, talent like that, pure talent. And um, obviously, obviously those people are taking that talent and just honing it and working on it like massively. It's like, you know, Penn's a, Bob Dil- a huge Bob Dylan fan. And, um, you know, when they have the blood on the tracks notebooks and every song has gone through 10,000 revisions or whatever it is. But I still... I still um, am convinced that there is a spark there. There is a spark of genius in, in those people that uh, is absent from me. And therefore, I have to work uh, you know, 
as hard as I can in order to be in the same, to even be in the same room. And I'm okay with that because um, I, I like the work. I was going to, I'm fond of asking people what quality got them where they are if it's not your comic ability or your magical ability. But I guess you've already answered it's that. It's stupidity. It like you... It's arrogance. It's, you know, the arrogance of, of even thinking that I can do this. It's privilege of, uh, you know, going, oh, yeah, I can just be a magician for my life. You know, that, I mean, it's ridiculous. It's like, uh, you know, like most people, 99% of people are like, uh, yeah, I think I need to go and get a job. And uh, I was lucky enough to be, able, you know, I mean, I was like, there was, when I really came up with um, the act, there was, it was over a, like, there was like a year and a half where it really, where I really developed it. And I house it, I house sat for somebody and I didn't earn any money for a year. And I just had a friend who, they were a lawyer and they were, they were away for a year. So I was able to live on like, I don't know, 1500 pounds for a year or something. Um, and, and it, w- without that, I wouldn't be able. I wouldn't be able to do this. How do you cope when things go wrong? When magic goes wrong, or when you're in the creation of magic? When you're frustrated? When you when you can't do it? You in one of your panic attacks? I mean, how right. serious are you about the? Panic oh attack? no, very serious. Do you mean you're a bit of an edgy person? No, so there. So, do you mean you... No, no, no. I have like, um, so so so, on stage, I love it when things go wrong. I love it. Because it's like, that's, that's the time that it's different for me. And it's a puzzle. And I'm like, how, how the hell am I going to get out of this? I'll give you an example. Uh, I was doing a show in DeKalb, Illinois, which is just outside Chicago. And um, it was a big theater, a lot of people there. And the dog was solving a Rubik's Cube. And uh, I looked down and the dog hadn't solved the Rubik's Cube. He just hadn't. In fact, he'd mixed up the Rubik's Cube so badly that there was no way to recover. And I was like, oh, shit. And at that stage, a bat got loose in the theater. <laughs> and I was like, huh, there's a bat loose in the theater, everyone. And everyone turned around to see the bat loose in the theater. <laughs> and I said to Jade, hey, Jade, would you go and get that bat, please? So she got a big, you know, a big uh, trash bag and she was running around the theater trying to catch a bat. Meanwhile, I was on stage unsolving and resolving a Rubik's Cube because that stupid dog had ruined it. Uh, and then they caught the bat. And then I said, oh, where were we? Oh, yes, the dog was about to solve a Rubik's Cube. Take it away. <laughs> and the dog solved the Rubik's Cube. So that's the element that I love because you could never imagine that um, that scenario happening. And, and, and the love of that, I mean, it's obvious that's a really funny outcome. Presumably there are times when you didn't manage to nail it something went wrong and you didn't manage to nail it um, because that's a that's a wonderful kind of random success story and i suppose what we can learn from it is that by kind of face planting into right. by being un, by being unafraid if something goes wrong like you said you've practiced enough now that when something goes wrong you can fix it on the fly you can change what you claimed was at stake earlier on and make the do you know what I mean? So you the trick ends differently or it becomes a different trick. So you've got you are you are well versed enough. So is it just experience yeah, knowing I, that like if a thing goes wrong, I can work it out? I think um that's why I like it on stage, because I you know, I, most of the tricks I've done um every which way. So I know all of the problems that I might come up with. And I can usually figure out a way on stage to make it happen. You know, I'm very present when I'm on stage. So um, I, so I, I really enjoy that part of it. I enjoy the heckler who um, 
is has decided that today they're going to try and ruin a dragon. You know, I sort of welcome that and embrace it. And, and it's what the audience responds to as well. So, um, you know, one of the things is, is, is that can every show be the show that people go, oh, my God, I saw Piff the Magic Dragon once and a bat got loose in Chicago. You know, and trying to create, um, because there's so much improv in the show. So, and I have, like, the audience is, like, characters to me. The audi- You know, I have, like, um, now, like I say, it was a big thing for me to let go of that, that thing of, like, I'm going to, like, play the i'm going to hit on i'm going to hit on somebody in the audience because that's such an easy magic trope and so five years ago whenever it was that i let go of that um then it became well what do i do now so now there's like these like there's like one villain in the audience so there's always like there's one cynic in the audience who i'm spend the whole show trying to convince that um uh trying to convince that magic is uh is is something to be embraced and then there's a couple who have like apparently in my eyes they're on the edge of breakup and I'm the only one who can save them there's a there's okay <laughs> that's nice you know, that's a nice angle there's a kid who like his only one christmas wish is to be on stage of piff the magic dragon so like i have these like roles in a show and then it's like building building um uh a kind of a a, a one act play every night where all of this stuff comes together and so I really enjoy that challenge of it. And anything goes wrong, the nice thing is, is that it can very easily fit into that, you know, oh, my God, I can't believe, I can't believe this has gone wrong. When, and look at this guy, you know, the cynic who, like, look at him. He's like, oh, really, Jesus? You just turned water into wine. Guess what? I'm a recovering alcoholic. That's very insensitive. So, sure. you know, there are all those different elements. So, so anything that goes wrong makes the show memorable to me. So I, now, in this part of my career... I love it so much. Whereas before it was just painful. It was like, oh yeah, uh, this is, this may not, this may not be resolved. <laughs> and you were saying, I think, I, I felt like you were about to say it's off stage when things goes, when things go wrong. That's a different kettle of fish. Yeah. I, well, I mean like, uh, maybe like, maybe like 2% of my work is on stage and 98% of it is, is off stage. You know, there's no, it's no secret that, um, headlining a show in Las Vegas is a lot of work. So, you know, when you when you said, "Oh, um, I've wanted to do this podcast for ages," so I, you know, I, I was like, "Hey, can we ask Stuart if we can do this?" And um, and you said, "Okay, I can do one p.m. whatever bullshit time it is for you." You know, after <laughs> you, after your mid morning nap or whatever, you know, after your your late brunch. Uh, you know, I, I'm more than happy to get up at. 5am and do a and do a podcast and then you know spend the day working because I know that it gives me the edge that um I need because I don't have that touch of genius I mean I remember reading about you know Michael Phelps the the swimmer you know he worked out that if he um if he if he trained on like the the holidays on Christmas and all this stuff that would give him like a whatever it was, a a 0.5% edge over his competitors. And it's that sort of um, insanity that I I try and get, I try and like edge towards in order to give myself the biggest chance of success on stage. Is that workaholism? Oh, yeah. Is that None of this is healthy. Does it feel compulsive and weird? Oh, yeah. Like, (laughs) chasing the perfect show is like chasing the perfect high. You know, and I'm like, a, I'm a massive addict. I spent my 20s um, in various, 
I, I was actually sick when I was 22 to 26. I had uh, chronic pancreatitis, not from alcoholism. So therefore, you know, chronic pancreatitis is one of those diseases you get no sympathy from because everyone thinks you brought it on yourself. But I had a, I had a tube missing in my pancreas. And um, they said, well, it basically hurts a lot, so have all the morphine you need. And uh, it turns out there was no there was no bottom to that. Uh, oh God! <laughs> to that, I was like, so I'm I'm very aware that I've got a very addictive personality, which I just um, I just like to rather than trying to battle it, I try and direct it into um, something a bit more useful, like like uh, stupid dragon tricks. And when it, and when it does, when you are you were talking before, or I was asking before about the anxiety about panic attacks. Is that, yeah. a, is that a real thing, like real actual panic attacks or just that? Oh, yeah. I grew, uh, when I grew up, I had massive, massive panic attacks about, wh- which, which I think is the only sane reaction, by the way, about being, um, you know, about, about the idea of God and heaven and hell. I had massive panic, panic attacks because that concept is so uh, terrifying. And so I think whatever that is, that's sort of like, that was baked in enough as a kid in order for it to translate through the rest of my life. And so, um, you know, so then it becomes about managing it. And again, I mean, James Acaster says it far better than I could when he's like, when he talks in his special about, oh yeah, everyone has problems and we should just talk about it and that's okay. So, um, you know, I, I have to have, uh, I have to manage it. Otherwise it becomes, otherwise it's always there. So the only choice is, do you, do I uh, ignore it and it like becomes a real problem or do I do the best I can to tackle it head on and manage it? And, um, and that's what I, that's, that's, that's sort of my approach, but it's, it's a nightmare. And then, you know, I, I say to any... my, pa- I say to my parents, you know, my, my mum's side of the family is, is, is pretty, um, it's pretty sane, but uh, my dad's side of the family is, is uh, all over the place. You know, with a clear history of this, and it's like, oh yeah, that's just the, I guess that's what it is. And are there any particular, like, panic attack other than that that principle of direct the energy into something else and talk about it? Except those two principles. Are there any particular? Have you got any like kind of um, techniques or kind of off the peg things you could share with? Like, this is what I do when I feel one coming. Yeah, I'm right. I mean, thankfully, um, the 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 coping mechanisms are out there and it is just as stupid as breathing correctly and uh meditation and um not overloading myself with a bunch of things but but i mean also it's like it's also tricky because um probably not not being a las vegas headliner (laughs) You know, because there's so much pressure in that. But it's like, hey, you're going to do what you're going to do. So, um, you, you know, yeah, it's like it's just asking for asking for help and making sure that, you know, I, I see, you know, I see a, a, a doctor like every other week okay. just to like check in and make sure everything's fine. Because um, because otherwise, I mean, I had a I had a friend of mine who killed himself um, two years ago, two and a half years ago. Out of nowhere, out of nowhere. And it's not something to be toyed with. You know, it's not something to be um, to be taken lightly. 
So I don't take that chance. I do everything I can to um, look after that that side of my health. And, um, you know, I don't see, like, when I when I was growing up, I was ashamed of that part of my uh, myself. But now, like you say, I see it as the, you know, I see the addictive side of my personality as being the flip side of the coin of, hey, I can work really hard and I can... Uh, I can get to like live, uh, you know, live this crazy dream of being of, of being able to perform my show uh, every night in Las Vegas, and it's full of all these mad ideas that I had and somehow brought to life on stage. Here we go. Well, the first one is from yeah. Lawrence Wheatman, and it is what are, what are Penn and Teller really like. And that seems like a sort of trite question, but let's see if you can answer it, given your pals with them. My friend says, my, my friend says about these things, everyone wants the story to be, oh, yeah, yeah the massive dicks. <laughs> like, whenever, whenever anyone says, like, hey, what's he really like? Uh, then, then the only answer people are interested in is that they're massive dicks. Uh, no, Penn and Teller have been, like, they've been mentors, best friends, like, incredibly generous I've been down, I've been, you know, Vegas has not been a smooth journey for me. I've had the ups and downs. When I first came here, I was signed to a 10-year contract to be a small part in a big show. And after six months, that show ended. And it took me a year to get, uh, to get another gig, which happened to be my Jeez. own show. And that was a year of not working. So, you know, during that period, they were there for me and adopted me and, uh, you know, gave me work suggesting terrible ideas in their in their las vegas magic show and i think you know i spent a year working for them and they used two of my ideas and and those ideas were tiny minor parts but they kept you know they kept they kept saying hey come back next week come back next week so i mean they they're just great great people are you happy yeah oh yeah 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 i'm so glad yeah i get to um yeah, I mean, it's just incredible, all of this stuff that's happened. And, um, and you know, at the beginning when I started, my only dream was to be in uh, La Clique or La Soiree as it became. And so that happened early on. So everything else has been gravy. And, um, you know, obviously, like, I want to I wanna keep moving on to the next thing and the next thing. And, and like with a special, you know, I go, oh, my God, there's, like, there's a real this could be a real thing like getting there could there's a really rich world to be explored on tv for this for this act definitely and the special the special really proves that it's such a great piece of work and it's such a great calling card yeah and it is just completely full of hey tv people look at everything i can do with this the tone with which you're doing a trick for those guys in the work helmets and stuff and oh, it yeah. doesn't blow them away and you do this kind of fake voiceover of them being impressed is all of that is just <laughs> love it yeah well thank you no I, I i hope we'll get it out there soon uh but yeah i'm very happy and um uh and i've got uh and i've got the best co-star in the world mr piffles who is uh a constant source of joy. I've never met anyone happier to see me than that dog. It's unbelievable. <laughs> That's you're the first double act I've spoken to. <laughs> the first double act yeah. I've spoken to with a non-human member. And uh, Mr. Yeah. Piffle seems very well treated. And I know from Ali Cook that there are huge amounts of legal precedents in place to ensure that magicians' animals are well looked after. 
Yes, there's also just uh, d the dignity of a of a of a, a fluffy, fluffy little dog that is uh, to be protected at all costs. Mate, thanks so much. Thank you. So that was Piff. Thank you so much to John for coming along and for getting up so early. I say coming along, switching on his internet, but doing so in a very early place. And um, you can see what am i gonna oh no I, I know which image is accompanying this episode i've got the video of this and he's wearing a costume throughout and with an incredible animatronic or animated background so i might find a way to get that to you as well but find out everything you can about piff he's just uh, i mean i love his act and i really hope the special gets the reaction it deserves when it eventually comes out so excited to talk to him um thanks to piff thanks to nathan wood for editing and uploading the show thanks to jake crossland for the logging music was by rob smout and podcast consultant steadfastly remains peter dobbing despite his recent lack of interest in the show um he's got his own oh i'll find out from pete whether i can link to his um he's been doing a a lockdown project as really interesting series of videos about kind of the the creative moment or the sort of flair moment in lots of different industries so I'll, I'll find out and link to them in the show notes if i can um and that is all of that i'm talking fast because as ever i've almost run out of time for a post amble i'll do a very short one in a minute um but thank you everybody remember if you are a linkedin business person hook me up on linkedin this is i've started doing i've got material on this now uh, on stage about the fact that for some reason my weird nebulous gaseous career is um means that on stage i'm not hawking for people to follow my socials i'm hawking for people to add me on linkedin but there we are uh, feel free to do that it's Stuart goldsmith brackets comedy insights and you can find out all the other stuff i'm up to thank you for joining me on that platform and sharing and re-commenting and rebroadcasting the material that i'm putting on there i'm really enjoying doing this 30 days of resilience challenge which is no longer killing me. So I have learned and taught myself the resilience that I claim to. Thank you for listening. Post Amble coming up now. Comedianscomedian.com slash insiders for all those extra bits and bobs and loads more stuff. This thing about the block of jelly that's cost him 70 grand is mwah. Bye for now. I had such a fun experience today. I did a thing for the Juniper Trust, which is an organization, a charitable organization that works with a small select group of underprivileged young people in Scotland and tries to give them opportunities and networking and sort of searches for, I don't know, I, I won't go into detail on what it does, but it's really impressive. Um, and I highly recommend you check out the Juniper Trust if you are that way inclined. But um, I was invited to talk to them not about the resilience stuff that I've been doing, but about creativity, which is so exciting because I've got these three things. I've got resilience, I've got authenticity and I've got creativity. When I say I've got these three things, I've also got soul. But what I mean is I have presentations on all of those things. And the creativity slash problem solving one is pretty new. It's pretty nascent. And I was using this as a sort of uh, an opportunity to get to grips with some of that stuff and also to kind of fine tune it and add different modular bits here and there. And I just had such an exciting time. It was so great. So um, what can I say about that? I suppose the thing I learned from that, which I, I had loads and loads, reams and reams of material and ideas, but I actually built the thing in quite a hurry, whilst including in it that one of my big tips for creativity is to do it against the clock. Just start immediately, set yourself a 20-minute timer, and the sort of the reframing of putting yourself 
of having to do creativity against the clock is incredibly useful. I think that's the basis of the Pomodoro technique, if you've encountered that. Um, so I was sort of pulling it all together very quickly, going into it with genuine, like I'd managed to genuinely convert the nerves or recognize and reframe the nerves as excitement. So I felt really excited going into it. And then this weird thing happened whereby I had notes to refer to um, on the, the screen. Yes, is one of the lovely things about presenting these remotely um, these days in pandemia times um, that you're able to have a cheat sheet right below the eyeline. But I didn't use it for ages. And then I really noticed myself drop a gear and then go, oh, now I'm looking at my notes. But it was one of those things as a thing I, I um, say to people if I'm kind of mentoring them or if people want sort of help with presentation skills which is that rather people are often terrified that they'll forget stuff i share that the same i share that that fear how will i remember what i'm going to say and the thing i say to people is just try to win the argument like you don't not that it needs to be antagonistic in the sense of that kind of uh, argument but just try and prove your point just try and make your point and prove your point because when you're having an argument with someone in the pub or a conversation about a movie you love you don't need to prep it in advance and write down all your notes you just speak from the heart only that concept of like speaking from the heart sounds very highfalutin and actually all it, it really is it just means so i I'm, this is multiple tangents here this is a post table i'm not claiming this is serious and planned or anything um but so much of trying to get your point across i'm really sort of fascinated i'm spending a lot of time trying to articulate what i mean to people in various contexts this being one of them and you get to hear a fun version of it where i struggle and flip and flop around all the place um so thank you for opting in if you have um but so much of it seems to be you remember a post amble a couple of weeks ago i talked about a big sort of therapy breakthrough i'd had where i realized that i was knowing i knew how I needed to feel about a particular challenge, but I didn't feel it. I just knew it. And so knowing it kind of wasn't good enough. I just knew it, but I didn't feel it. So I couldn't activate it and I couldn't actualize it. Oh, I mean, so much of this language is sort of torturous, but I couldn't just start. I couldn't change until I felt it rather than knowing it. And I think that's the same when you're trying to explain a thing to people so much of the stuff I, I did today and the stuff i've been doing with businesses and what have you and the stuff i've been doing mentoring when i was doing the working lunches thank you to everyone that came for a working lunch last year so much of it is just about trying to explain something incredibly easy in a way that or incredibly clear incredibly simple and the 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 mission is just to get the message across and sometimes you find yourself thinking how can i get the message across i can whisper it or shout it or sing it it doesn't matter all that matters is that they understand it and so i what i had before i kind of reverted back to notes which was still sort of fine but i really felt like oh i understand this now i was doing that thing which i always tell people to do which is to try and win the argument so my fear is that speaking for 45 minutes like if you've got absolutely no notes and it's not a script that you've deliberately learned you're simply saying there's five things to creativity, I think, and they are this, 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 and this, that I just tried to win the argument. And I did win the argument. I came away from it. They had a great time. Feedback was lovely. I was really electrified because I was just, I felt like I felt like I won the argument, except it wasn't an antagonistic argument. The argument was all about creativity, self-belief, community, resilience, all those things that I love talking about. It just felt like, you know, we talk about this on, on ComCom sometimes, you have an idea for a joke. You find a way to tell that joke and the planets align. You know, you have an idea about like uh, 
God, I don't know, you have an idea about um, love and you talk about it through the medium of cycling. And once you find that premise, like the attitude is, I love being in love, just to pluck something that sounds like bad comedy out of the air. I love being in love. And you f- and the premise is, I love it even more than I love cycling. And then you go, oh, great. And then you're starting doing, making up jokes about uh, love and handlebars and love and brakes and love and p- padlocks and what have you. This is the worst example ever, but you get my point. The planets align and they really felt like they did today. So I'm just, you know, I'm pretty happy. <laughs> I'm pretty happy. And then I shut my laptop and walked outside, collected uh, the Boutros to take him to a swimming class. And uh, he flipped out, had a go at me and he brought me right back down to earth. So there's that. Do I need to mop up anything from that? Did I say everything I meant? There's more to find there, isn't there? There's more in the idea that getting, explaining something to someone. Here's my, okay, so my friend John, um, hello if you're listening, John. He uh, works in a proper, proper thing. And I met him 10 years, I can't name it. It's a big institution that you know, but I won't name it. Um, And years ago, I said to him at a house party, when I was the first or second time I met him, I said, what do you do? And he said, well, you know, like, um, he said, you know, this will date it. It was something like Winamp. Do you know what I mean? It was something like a music player, not quite iTunes, proto iTunes kind of thing. He said, you know, those things that play MP3s, that program, you know, you can make it look like anything. Like it can look like sort of the bridge of the Starship Enterprise, or it can look like just a completely boring blank black and white web page. You can, it can look like anything. And I went, yeah. And he said, well, I do that. You know, the way I just explained to you how things can look like different things. I do that for a variety of things. I could have fallen over. I was like, oh, my God, you have just explained to me that you explain things to people by explaining it really well. You 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 dress things in certain ways such that people can understand them, like the example you've just given me. Fantastic. And I think more and more I'm really enjoying doing that. I'm really enjoying fluency and being articulate and and because when you are articulate in the right way people stop just thinking they agree with you and they feel they agree with you and then you can help people effect change i've gone mad and turned into some sort of guru (laughs) i mean i haven't but this must sound balmy thanks for sticking with it if you have i tell you the other great thing that happened is um I did a proper gig back. I'd done I'd done a preview, like an hour, like a solid hour preview to something like 14 people, which was fun and indoors. And that was my first indoors one this year in proper doors. And then I did um, like a tough new material gig for sort of 25 minutes that was wonky and didn't make me feel good for one reason or another. And then last night I did half an hour of actual stand up in a, a, a temporary structure, but a structure with proper lighting and a proper stage and a hundred people in and blow me down. I'm back, baby. (laughs) And it was so thrilling to not be in a drive-through, to not be in a sort of courtyard, to not be in a tent. I mean, we were in a tent, but it didn't feel like a tent. It felt like, oh, this. Oh, yeah, this. I was, I riffed up a load of new stuff. How much time do I sit around? pondering creativity and trying to make it efficient and trying to make the process efficient and then what you really need is a cooking room and some you've been great for 10 minutes and you just start improvising and and you find a load of stuff and naturally say a load of things you actually think and there it is and you go well there we go that's the beginning of more stuff so look at me full of the joys i said this would be a quickie but i've got on one and now it's 16 minutes later and i'm knackered goodbye (laughs) 